Finland has been named the happiest country in the world, according to the World Happiness Report. Yes, Finland. It's always one of those Scandinavian countries, isn't it? Denmark, Sweden, Norway. In fact, every year they are typically ranked in the top 10. The United States, on the other hand, rarely breaks the top 10. And this year is no different. We're ranked number 15. Well, studies have been done to analyze why this is the case. And what they have discovered is that, yes, while there are numerous factors, of course, that play a role in a country's happiness, there is one that is quite pivotal. Expectations. Generally speaking, the higher people's expectations are about what they'll get out of life, the lower the country measures in overall happiness. But the lower people's expectations are, the higher the country's happiness index. It seems our Nordic friends don't expect too much out of life. It reminds me of something our former priest of spiritual formation, Father Ross Guthrie, used to say. He would say that the key to happiness is low expectations. If you set your goals low enough, you'll hit them every time. (laughs) Not the most inspiring sentiment, but still, there is some truth there. A lot of our frustrations with life, our discontentment with our current situation, our job or family or whatever, much of this stems from placing unrealistic expectations on our lives. We expect things to come easy. For everyone in my life to be on the same page as I am. We expect to get what we want when we want it. We expect to be healthy all the time. We expect life to be smooth sailing. And when these expectations are not met, we feel cheated. We cry foul. Life's not fair. And so managing one's expectations is a huge part of living a a healthy and sober life. But this is also true when it comes to the expectations we place on God. Indeed, I would even argue that the expectations we have of life are intricately connected to the expectations we have of God. So that when life's expectations are not met, our faith can take a tumble. Lord, where are you? Why are you doing this? What's going on? I wonder then if we ought to take a closer look at our expectations to see if they might, you know, need an adjustment. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. That's how our gospel passage today from John 11 begins, with something unexpected, something painful. Lazarus, along with his two sisters, Mary and Martha, were close friends of Jesus. They lived in a small town just outside of Jerusalem, so that it appears whenever Jesus journeyed to Jerusalem for a a particular Jewish holiday or feast, he would lodge with these his good friends. In fact, there are some scholars who even suggest that Lazarus might be that mysterious character in John's gospel known as, quote, 
the disciple whom Jesus loved. A phrase that is scattered here and there without reference to anyone by name. Notice that when Mary and Martha send their urgent message to Jesus about Lazarus' condition, the message went like this. Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's Lazarus. And then when Jesus arrives at Bethany and consoles Mary with his own tears, the crowd responds with these words saying, See how much he loved him? Two references here to how much Jesus loves Lazarus, perhaps the beloved disciple. But whether or not Lazarus is this mysterious character, the point remains. Jesus was very close to this family, especially to Lazarus. And so as sickness lays this man out, his sisters are in a panic. I mean, this can't happen. Lazarus is the breadwinner here. He's the only man in our household. Our livelihood is tied to the health of our brother. And so like we all do, when something unexpected, something painful and tragic occurs, they turn to Jesus and they ask for help. They ask Jesus to intervene. But also, just like we do, they turn to Jesus with certain expectations. Expectations that, like our own, probably need to be reconfigured so that our faith doesn't take an unnecessary tumble. Yes, as with life, so with God. Our expectations so often need an adjustment especially when pain or tragedy comes our way. And the first expectation that needs to be reconfigured has to do with time. We need to adjust this expectation and realize that God isn't in a hurry. God does not operate according to our sense of urgency. Listen to verse 5 in our story. It says, quote, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus, his good friend, was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Excuse me? Jesus waited two days? Is this your definition of friendship? What was Jesus doing that was more important than aiding a friend in dire need. I mean, what's the deal? Well, whatever it was, apparently it wasn't significant enough even for John to mention what it was. He just says, Jesus waited for two days. When Jesus finally does arrive, you can hear the frustration in Martha's voice. Don't rush right over, Mr. Savior, Mr. Compassionate. It's too late now. Lazarus is dead. But if you had been here right after we sent the message, my brother would not have died. I don't know about you, but people who aren't in a hurry get under my skin. Whether that's the slow poke in the car in front of me, or someone late for an appointment, or packages that are delayed. I mean, chop, chop, let's go. There's things to do. But then there's Jesus. Think about it. Jesus was never in a hurry. 
can't think of one instance. Do you ever see him rushing around, stressed out that he isn't going to get everything done? Never. Though he's constantly surrounded by impatient crowds, Jesus never lets their urgent needs dictate his ministry. Do you remember when one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came to Jesus in a rush, right? He fell at his feet, begged him, Jesus, my little daughter is about to die. Can you imagine your daughter? Please come and and lay hands on her so that she might live. In fact, Jairus causes such a commotion that that a large crowd begins to form and follows Jesus to this emergency house visit. But before they arrive, an old woman suffering from hemorrhages reaches out among the people and barely touches the cloak of Jesus. And right then and there, the parade stops dead in its tracks. For Jesus is not in a hurry. Instead, he stops, reaches down, and engages the woman and heals her of her disease. The interruption takes so long that while Jesus is still speaking to the woman, some people from Jairus' house arrive and deliver the dreaded news. Your daughter is dead. No need to trouble Jesus any longer. Can you imagine how Jairus felt at this moment? Why, Jesus? Why didn't you hurry? Couldn't you have dealt with this old woman later? You and I can resonate with that, can't we? For when pain or tragedy comes our way, we want it resolved yesterday. We want it taken care of immediately. That seems like the only prudent course of action. But not according to God. God isn't in a hurry. He doesn't operate according to our calendars. And this is the first expectation we must reconfigure in the midst of hard times. But even if we're able to get over this incredibly difficult hurdle and develop some patience in view of a God who isn't in a hurry, that will likely make us prone to struggle with another misplaced expectation that God must not really care I mean if God isn't in a hurry then surely he must be standing aloof from our pain and our distress he's really not as concerned as we thought he would be but our story teaches us that we need to reconfigure this expectation as well for when pain or tragedy comes your way the second reconfigured expectation is this God doesn't stand aloof. No, God cares more deeply about our situation than we can imagine. He is closer to us in our pain than we can possibly know. Three times in the gospel accounts, we see tears in the eyes of Jesus, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, as he reckons with his impending death, on the way to Jerusalem as he cries over the hard-heartedness of the city, and then here, at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, Jesus begins to weep. He cares so deeply for him. See how much he loved him, the crowd say. This fact is never questioned about Jesus, his compassion. Even though Jesus is not in a hurry, 
He's always moving closer to those who are in pain. He's always moving closer to those who are facing death. If the incarnation teaches us anything, it teaches us that God never stands aloof, but rather he enters into the depths of our humanity. The so-called problem of evil has always been one of the most challenging intellectual and philosophical arguments against God and Christianity. How do we reconcile the existence of evil and suffering with a loving and powerful God? Any quick and easy answer to this problem will always be found wanting. But the fact that our God doesn't stand aloof to evil and suffering, but rather in the person of Jesus enters into our human experience, enduring suffering and death, even death on a cross, well, that at least gives me a degree of comfort. It doesn't answer the problem away, But it does tell me that God is always present in my pain and that he cares deeply. God does not stand aloof. That's the second expectation we must reconfigure in the midst of hardship. And so if we can reconfigure these two expectations, things will go much better for our life of faith. God isn't in a hurry. God doesn't stand aloof. But my friends, by themselves, I still think we're in trouble. Because if that's all, if that's it, is there any room left for hope? Well, this is the main point of our story, isn't it? That even though Jesus doesn't hurry to get there, and even as Jesus doesn't stand aloof to the pain, Jesus teaches us that God always offers us hope. Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. Now, like we all do when dealing with death, Martha takes some comfort in that, in, you know, looking to the future. And so, yes, Lord, she says, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This, by the way, is, is not a reference to Lazarus going to heaven, but rather to Lazarus, along with the faithful dead being raised to new bodily life in the age to come. I mean, this is what is envisioned in our Old Testament reading today from Ezekiel, with its valley of of the dry bones rattling together and, and coming to life, a powerful picture of the dead rising to inherit a renewed creation. Martha's theology, you see, is spot on. Yes, Lord. I know, he will rise again in the resurrection, but that's on the last day. But it's at this point that Jesus gives her more than that. He says to her, no, you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. This is what Jesus made the centerpiece of his preaching that the time has come. God's promises are being fulfilled now. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand now in me, Jesus says. The age to come with its promise of resurrection and life, its promise of peace and forgiveness, its promise of healing and love, this last day is now here 
in the person of Jesus, the one standing before you, Martha, even as you stand before the death of your brother. It seems that even in the middle of Lent, as we're face-to-face with the reality of death, as the words of Ash Wednesday are still ringing in our ears, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Even now, God is offering us hope, inviting us to celebrate the new creation that has come with Easter. Indeed, that's what Jesus is fond of doing throughout his entire ministry, isn't it? That's what we see. What is he doing? He's he's offering hope. He's giving foretaste of resurrection, glimpses of new creation. It's here. It's it's there. It's why Jairus' daughter is raised to life. It's why Lazarus is beckoned forth from the tomb. It's why tax collectors and prostitutes are restored to their community. It's why the low are lifted up and the, and the mighty are cast down from their thrones. Why? Because new creation is here and is coming, Jesus says. Resurrection is here and is coming. Even now, there is hope. Even now. I realize this is difficult for us to integrate into our world of pain and tragedy. The loss of loved ones, cancer diagnoses, the war in Ukraine, the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, tornadoes in Mississippi, even the betrayal of a friend, things that are are dragging us down in our own everyday lives. Where are there hints of resurrection in these? One of the reasons this season of Lent is given to us is that we might practice spotting glimpses of resurrection so that we might train ourselves to see how new creation is blooming in the most unexpected places. For we, the church, are meant to be a people who pull the future promises of God right into the present, who make the reality of Jesus tangible for a world that has lost all hope. A people who, by their shared life together, can proclaim in the present world, in the present and to the world, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, even now. Reconfiguring these expectations certainly won't answer all of our questions. It won't necessarily make this or that pain even go away. It won't fix all of our problems or make us happier than any other country. But it will enable you, like Martha, to see and and receive the life and love of Jesus afresh. It will give you hope. And that will be enough. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the new day that has dawned by the giving of your son, Jesus Christ, and his pouring out of the Spirit into our lives, into this community, the church. May we be a people trained to see glimpses of resurrection and new life around us. Help us to manage our expectations well and know that you are a God who, though is not in a hurry, does not stand aloof, but is close and cares and always looking to offer us hope. So may we always be 
that people of hope. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.